gavel this to order? Owen yeah. Davis. All right, well then yeah. let's do this. Owen Davis. Um, <laughs> uh, I appreciate you doing this, man. We, you, I met you at SOCI, I think, mm-hmm. is the first time we met. And what year was that? I believe it was 2011. So 10 years ago. Jesus Christ, bro. All right, oh my 10 God. years. That is a decade. So that's. I feel like we have enough data now that we can look back after 10 years and sort of make some, call some balls and strikes here in terms of what, <laughs> what happened. 10 years is sort of, that's the advice we got from Nexus when... I wasn't in the group when they met with him first, but they were just like, don't expect anything until a decade. Mm-hmm. Like, then that's when things will start to snowball a little bit. And yeah. by God, if that isn't true. <laughs> um, but well, let's, let's, uh, what have you been up to? What do you want to, what do you want to chat about today? What's been on your mind and, and how do you want to spend this, this hour or so? Yeah. Um, well, let's see. What have I been up to? Uh, I just finished my third year of teaching elementary school music, mm-hmm. which is uh, a realm that I didn't imagine myself being in. Mm-hmm. However, it's one of those things where you f- you fall into it and then you fall in love with it. And now I can't see myself not doing it. <laughs> Part, pardon my ignorance because like, like we just acknowledged, it's been 10 years, but I have this image in my head, and correct me if I'm wrong, of you being coming from sort of a composing background. Yeah, and yeah. So, like, I I don't remember you saying much about like I want to teach, I want to do elementary school education. Now, again, ten years ago, but like, yeah. How have you sort of evolved in those ten years? How did you land in music ed? Yeah. Oh, okay. That's. It, I I think it's an interesting story. Maybe. So, uh, in my undergrad mm-hmm. uh, at NAU, studying with Steve Hempel. So, what I is NAU? Pardon my ignorance. Oh, a, yes, Northern Arizona University. Okay. There's right. three big. There's uh, U of A, ASU, and then NAU. Yeah, there's a. I, I've known about like the Arizona percussion scene has been something like. Is it JB Smith or JB Smith is at ASU? Um, yep. There and was a Gary real... Cook was at U yeah. of A for the longest time, and then, and I think uh, I Norm think I knew Weinberg and yeah, yeah yeah okay I think I knew about Arizona because of the steel band scene they had they were one yeah. of the early collegiate steel bands. Um, Wes Hawkins still has a, yeah. a huge presence um, with with the steel band community that that was actually built in the mid nineties. So okay. All right, yeah. sorry, I, I, I derailed you there. So you're you're at NAU, <laughs> uh, yeah. And Steve Steve Hempel also um, has a, a smaller steel band project, mm-hmm. um, but something that he requires his students to do is compose, and through that, I fell in love with composition and experimental music. You, you know, all of these channels that we go through. You know, Cage Cage was my gateway drug. Mm-hmm. Um, you know fell head over heels for his ideas and his music and all that stuff. And, you know, that led me to Soci actually. Mm-hmm. And like talking with Adam after. How did you, seeing... how did you hear about like, sorry, I'm, it is H O double T here, buddy. And I'm oh, yeah. going to turn my AC unit on <laughs> and see if I can make the noise a little less terrible for you. Is that bothersome for you? Mm. Otherwise, I will look like a, like a drenched rat by the end of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Sorry, yeah. go ahead. Uh, so, let's see. Yeah. How did I find out about So? Yeah, yeah. Percussion? Probably via Cage and, like, looking up ca- uh, Cage Percussion Works and then mm-hmm. finding third construction. I think probably the first video I saw or the first performance was a video of your Vic Firth yeah, third construction yeah. and being like, what the? <laughs> this is so rad, you know. And at, as a like nineteen year old, twenty year old, whatever, mm-hmm. at that time, like 
whoa, this is so, this is so cool. And then, um, I think I like reached out to Adam Mm -hmm. on, on social media and kind of talking and he told me about Sosi and Mm -hmm. then the rest is history. Uh, but yeah, I really fell in love with composition. And so my undergrad was in music education and I think yours was too. If I it was, yeah, I did under, uh, music ed and performance at Akron, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, halfway through that degree and at NEU, and I feel like it's very similar in other um, collegiate programs, it's a lot of work. Like, you're taking a lot of, like, one-credit classes. And um, long story short, it took me five and a half years to, me too. to finish that, that undergrad. And me too, man. You're in good company. It took me yeah. about almost six years with the student teaching at the end. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. Probably six years with the student teaching. Mm-hmm. And, um, but halfway through that, uh, adventure, I fell very much out of love with the idea of teaching and in love with the idea of composing and, and figuring that out and like being in a, you know, experimental band of sorts and what making was, music that way sorry to interrupt sorry just every if you don't mind every time i have yeah. a question i'm just gonna ask because <laughs> I, i'm really interested like i think because you and i have some similar we sort of parallel paths in terms of when you say you, you fell out of love with music education um what what was it about was it something about the process of getting the music ed degree that caused you to sort of fall in love with it or like what was it was there a moment was there was an instant like, was there an incident, something that, like, a teacher, like, what was it that caused you to sort of fall out of love with teaching? Mm. Yeah, I think what had happened was that I, and maybe this is, like, an early 20s thing, like, <laughs> I was, I was, like, reading Cage and overwhelmed by the, uh, I don't, just prof- how profound his work was, and I, I observed him and his work as, like, quote-unquote, changing the world in some way, like making a huge impact in the artistic world. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to do that too, mm. you know, and like, or, or just like, I wanted to do something that, that to me felt quote unquote important. Mm-hmm. And then I observed as I got closer to student teaching and you do um, practicum hours and you're in the classroom and everything, I just uh, – I also was, like, starting to make binaries in my mind of, like, experimental and radical and avant-garde and conservative and traditional. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I had, like, made this binary in my mind and I had put music education and, like, the public school system in this, like, <clears throat> conservative traditional box. Mm-hmm. And it just – it didn't fit my narrative anymore. I was like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, like – there's no way that I could be in the classroom and like the music education system is so uh, um, insular. Like we, we train these students to, to go through this program where they learn how to play this music and then they go to college and then they learn how to play it even more and then they become teachers and then they teach the new generation and it's just like this cyclical thing and I was like, I don't want to be a part of that. Or I felt like I, I had too many critiques and I felt like I couldn't change it and so i left mm. it and i i went i took this path that was to me at the time much more exciting and you know uh i i felt much more alive in it like free improvisation like the mm-hmm. the free improvisation world and uh, composing and all of this stuff and so 
I, that's that's why I fell out of love with music education. It's, it wasn't it wasn't a teacher or yeah. or any big event. It was like just the divergent paths in front of me. Mm-hmm. One looked much more attractive. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the interesting things. I mean, you said a word narrative um, that I think is important, and it's something that I've I think a lot about myself in terms of you know the paths in my life that I've gone down um, weren't always like choices like i'm gonna like i didn't go to yale and i was like i'm gonna join so percussion i'm gonna then i'm gonna tour in russia and then i'm gonna start a podcast and it's like that's <laughs> none of that at all was part of my narrative and i think it's part of just just identify it's like part of the evolutionary like wiring in our brains is like it's hard to move through your day if what's ahead of you doesn't make some sense, you know? Mm-hmm. And so you construct a narrative and I'm going to like, do you think your narrative was accurate? And if so, how much, I mean, I don't want to imply that it was all inaccurate. Some of it may yeah. have been true, but what part of your narrative 10 years ago is like a cancer that you're like, if now you had a scalpel, you'd just be like, Boop. if I'd have just cut that out when I was 22 years old, I would have had oh. a healthier view on this stuff. Whoa. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really interesting question. And it, it makes me think of um, speaking of podcasts. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that time, actually, I was really into This American Life mm-hmm. with uh, Ira Glass. Yeah, yeah. And he had a really great episode that was all about like plan B and how the majority of us are not doing our plan A thing. And we're not even doing our plan B thing. We're doing like a plan C. <laughs> and, yeah, because and, plan, a, cool. plan A and B, B plans, plans A and B seem like totally out of reach. So it's like, well, it's it with plan C, you know? <laughs> right, right. Um, so um, let's see. So the question was, if I could go back in time and like to, to my 22-year-old self, like critique that narrative. And- what did you miss? What, like, what did you misdiagnose? about the narrative that now as like, you know, more of an expert on Owen Davis that you could be like, okay, you were right about this, but wrong about this. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think one thing I would, I would maybe say that I was wrong about, and I'm still learning this. Um, but that things aren't so freaking binary that (laughs) it's not just conservative ideas. And then these like radical experimental ideas in, Mm -hmm. in music specifically. But I, I got very binary mm-hmm. and like I got very jaded and I started to critique entire institutions and, and, and people around me v- through this lens, through this mm-hmm. binary lens of like, oh, you're not, you're not radical enough. Like you, what? You don't know how to improvise? Like I don't have. <laughs> well, if that's your litmus <laughs> test, then you and I are not friends because I'm a terrible improviser. <laughs> like, like in so percussion, Jason. I, every time we have to, like, if we're collaborating with a composer or something, and they're just like, "Now here, I'd like this three minute section to be a group improv." J- Jason's a very good improviser in that sort of free scene, you know. Sure. I just see the vein on his head sort of pop up because he's like, "I don't want to improvise with three these three dum dums because, <laughs> like, you know, it's a. I I think if somebody was like, "Now these three minutes, I want you to sound like." a Trinidadian steel band, mm-hmm. then I, then my vein would be popping out because the other three guys don't know how to do that, you know? So it's a, it's just a, it's an interesting thing to sort of see that, see that stuff through that lens looking back, you know? Right. And, and I think what I meant by that is like, not even interested in it, not even acknowledging mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. as a modality of making music, like, you know, um, but that's a very common thing. I mean, I, sorry. I mean, when I was in grad school, I remember, so my first year, this is, 
I didn't start working with so until halfway through my second year, like February is when Adam reached out and I started like getting music and subbing with them. But like January or December, they came to do a show at Yale at Sprague Hall and they played so-called laws of nature and something else. And I remember watching it and I remember seeing Jason got lost at the end of the second movement for a second. And I remember I turned to Jamie Dietz, who was my good buddy and, and Eric Chaw Beach was there too. And we walked back to the to the percussion studio, and we were just like, "Fuck those guys, they're awful." Like, what are they doing? They're doing this for a living. I, we could kill them. And it was just like they're, they're just like they're nothing. And then like a month later, Adam emails me, and I'm like, "Absolutely, I'd be happy to play with you guys." <laughs> <laughs> you know, like in terms like it's easy to see the world binary until the thing sure. you're seeing as the thing you don't want, which you secretly want. Yeah. When they reach out to you, you're like, oh, well, yes, absolutely, sir. How may I help you? You know, mm-hmm. and that that for me was the moment where my my worldview sort of clashed with reality. And then I met the guys, and I'm like, oh yeah, when you play a hundred shows a year, at least one of them is going to be a complete plane crash into the mountain. Like that's what that, that's what and we saw the plane crash. That's just the one of the hundred shows we saw. You know, right? Oh man, yeah. Um, yeah, so so I think yeah, if I could go back in time, sure, yeah. Like I, I think now I, and again maybe this is the narrative that I'm imposing on myself now, but now I I'd like to to think that I'm much more open in terms of like, um, seeing seeing the the value in mm-hmm. in like traditional music and and music of all all backgrounds, mm-hmm. um, although I I do still struggle with this uh, when when it comes to like. You know, if you analyze a a concert season of a orchestra or something mm-hmm. like this, and you're like, "Oh, I wish you, I wish you had more diversity or representation of many things, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like modern music or um, you know, uh, diverse backgrounds of, of voices and ideas." Mm-hmm. So, um, well, how do you yeah. think that? Sorry, how? Sorry, I know we're like off the. Yeah, know, we're, I, I haven't we're even going. let you answer the question that I asked, but I don't really. I, like, there's more interesting questions I'm having now. Sorry, like what? What do you think is? What do you think is the way to like when you look at like the thing you wished that like you you're you're still frustrated with like you see a large orchestra or something. Mm-hmm. When you are diagnosing your like the way you're looking at institutions. 20 years ago, mm-hmm. how much to me, it sort of, it sounds a little bit like we're still seeing orchestras as a binary institution. Like it's like, Oh, you're not doing this. So you must be this. And it's like, mm-hmm. I, I see how the institution of so percussion works and we have five people in the organization, you know, it's like the mm-hmm. four of us and Shelby and how sure. hard, it's not hard to change things, but it, it takes time yeah. and you have to talk and you have to figure it out. Then you got to reach out to people. For an organization like an orchid, the New York Phil or Alabama Symphony or whatever, where there's hundreds of people in that organization, by default, it just moves slower. And so I think I'm, I'm diagnosing myself, I'm less apt to be to hold, I don't know how to hold them responsible other than to get on the inside of the orchestra, get on, mm-hmm. a, get on the board that chooses this stuff. Yep. And change it from the inside like a good cancer, you know? <laughs> but that right. that's really hard, and it takes decades to do that, and it's not satisfying because you don't see it on social media tomorrow. Like, yeah, how, do we, yeah. how do we do that without alienating what is already our incredibly small world <laughs> of, of, yeah. of colleagues? You know, how do we do that? Well, I have an idea, and I've never said this in, like, a public form. So I'm excited to say – to bounce this idea off of you. But my idea with like the orchestra specifically mm-hmm. is that we 
part of the problem is that we want it to be something that it's not. Mm-hmm. And like, we, we want it to be this, you know, a champion of living composers and all these things and like play diverse music. But by design, it's kind of not <laughs> supposed to be that way. So my, I, I thought of this uh, as, a, as a solution, as a model, and I don't know if it would work. It definitely won't become a reality, but my, my proposition for the orchestral world is that we we reframe it as like, okay, what I'm about to say might seem a little, I don't know, derogatory to some people, maybe, but I feel like we should just like repackage the orchestra as like the quote unquote musical museum. Hear me out. I'm listening. <laughs> I know you're not done yet. I'll wait till you're finished. <laughs> it has governmental funding, like government subsidies, in the same way that like a museum of, of modern art or any like the, you know, a- any art museum has, has funding, public funding, but also private funding and government subsidies, all this. But when you go to the orchestra, it's, it's like acknowledged and framed as like, we are going to go experience this amazing piece of Beethoven and like revel in this piece of Beethoven in the same way that you go see a Monet Mm. and like you, you experience it as that. And then like we really pay orchestral musicians as like, it's a, it's a restoration project, right? Like they're bringing these amazing pieces of classical music to life every week, every month for us. And you know, they're trained as, like, very, um, like, craft-oriented um, musicians who make these precise things. And and we stop trying to, like, force the orchestra to, again, be something that it's not. That And, and then we make new orchestras that are only for living composers and, and, all, of, and all of this stuff. But, like, um, yeah, we just reframe the the orchestra as again almost like a museum where like you know what you're getting into and we and we let go of this idea that we want it to be something else yeah it's an interesting it's an interesting idea i mean that the the thing that because orchestras i mean we all to some degree exist in the capitalist market where mm-hmm. you rely on somebody to buy what it is you're selling like the reason or you know the reason concerts have intermissions oftentimes is not necessarily to give the audience a break it's to sell alcohol in the lobby <laughs> mm-hmm. you know like and that's and and I'm not saying that to be flip flippant because we've been in situations where we you know we have a show that's like an hour and 30 minutes long it's like 10 minutes too long to be just one half but we're like can we just do this with no intermission like mm-hmm. straight through and people I don't think people are going to... We can go sit and watch a three-hour Lord of the Rings movie with no intermission. Like, why can't we just sit through an hour and a half of, you know, Steve Reich or whatever? And the answer, it's always like, oh, no, no, like, we have to run the bar and we got to sell merch and, like, those sorts of things. And and so, also the structure in which orchestras are forced to, then they got to pay rent on their their huge concert hall. Like, how is that being subsidized? Then you start to get into what is the NEA? How do they help? How do grant organizations help? We have very little funding in the United States on the federal level for this stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm also, I have a tiny, my only tiny pushback on what you were saying is I have this tiny little spark in me that still is holding on to the idea that 
or just the reality that mm. sometimes things don't work anymore. Mm. And <laughs> that means that means that you sometimes it means that there there was a pandemic and things shut down. Yeah. Sometimes you open a bakery and you're like, yeah, and you know, January of 2020 and that sometimes sometimes it's stuff out of your control. Yeah. Sometimes you have to look at your organization and you have to look at orchestras maybe as like um like the like the old Detroit car industry where you had like mm. 3 miles a gallon and that's what everybody was driving and now we got Teslas and it, the demand is just a little bit less. We want things that have and it's not because we look at the we looked at the Detroit I'm going to look at orchestras and be like no you guys were killing the earth or you were terrible. It's like no 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 it was a, it was an amazing thing. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Lots of great stuff, some bad stuff. But if it fails, it fails, and I and I have to then hold that account, hold that same standard to sell. And it's like, well, you know, if so percussion for some reason fails, maybe it's not the government's fault. <laughs> you know, maybe it's maybe yes, certainly it might have helped. But again, it's like you, you build these narratives that if something's not working, it's because of some some other thing. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, maybe that's just not the thing anymore and constantly trying to go back and tape it back together and be like look we fixed it for the next five years and then in five years you're like the tape's falling off and you gotta go back and put it back on i mean i don't i don't have there's no answer in there but like and i don't want to look at an orchestra and be like well you're gonna fail but Mm -hmm. we we sometimes i think as artists we forget that sometimes people just don't like what you do it doesn't matter how much you like it Sometimes people just may not want to listen to soap percussion anymore. Some people may not want to listen to the national anymore. And all of a right. sudden the nationals fig trying to figure out like what happened. Yeah. And so like, I, I think for me, the orchestra, like I, every time I hear the argument, I've heard the argument about orchestras dying f- since I was an undergrad. Right. And I just, I don't, I don't know. It just is like, yeah, it's a huge ensemble. Like you've got a, like if a bass, like it's bigger than the Chicago bears. <laughs> Every orchestra is bigger than an NFL football team, for Christ's sake, you know? And so, I don't know. Um, sorry, you got me thinking now. Like, Yeah. Owen Davis. That, that's so real, though. That's so real. Yeah. Like, you know, and as a curator, too, mm-hmm. of, a, of an experimental music series, like, I've had shows with... I had one show with zero people in the audience mm-hmm. and like mm-hmm. I was the only one there and it was an improv show. So I just like improvised with the people mm-hmm. and then we got pizza and it was chill. But yeah, like, uh, like, like is that, is your zero attendance a result of a lack of government funding and a lack of overall <laughs> support or is it, is it indicative of something you love that maybe just a lot of people don't right now? And like, well, yeah. And I, I will say, I will maybe hide behind the fact that, we only existed for like three months at that point. And now we're, now we're like five years into it mm-hmm. and we have more people coming and, and all of this stuff. Um, but I think you're, you're also hitting on, uh, speaking of narratives, maybe that's what this podcast is about. Narratives, <laughs> but like speaking of narratives, like there's a huge narrative in the U S but also a huge narrative in like music school and our training mm-hmm. that is like, keep pushing, like no matter what <laughs> like even if even if there's zero people there like you mm. could play your best show and and whatever and and there's there's a, a virtue to that there's a mm-hmm. virtue to like pushing and like this um almost myopic 
view of yourself as like the artist and, and whatever. And that's really <clears throat> toxic and unhealthy and like can lead to some really uh, awful dead ends. But it also can, can lead to some really amazing stuff and some um, <clears throat> adventurous music that wouldn't otherwise take place. So I don't know. Yeah, I, I think of, I this is a weird sort of like tangent that I think relates, but you can tell me if it doesn't later on. Um, I watch a lot of fighting and like boxing, mixed martial arts, UFC, like, and I know that that lot, it's not for everybody, but I listen to a lot of podcasts with fighters who talk about their process and the thing you laid out about, like, just keep, you got to keep going. Like to me, I, I, I have understood, I've, I've reacted against that sort of vibe all the time. Like take every gig, do every gig, hustle, 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 do the hustle. And I've had that feeling of like, man, like when is this ever going to, end like is it is it ever going to end and i've i've come to think when i when i listen to the fighters talk about what they do like there's a there's a training there's an endurance there's a just at bats like yeah going in and getting punched in the face and losing a fight sucks and you don't want to keep doing that but the thing they all talk about is like i wouldn't trade that five minutes in the ring for anything because i actually know a lot more about myself than i did going into it yeah now you can keep pushing and pushing and pushing and then be i've seen i've been at an orchestra audition where i've seen guys who are 60 years old taking their 90th audition and that i i learned like oh i don't want to be that so Mm. you know how do how do you sort of how do you identify when you're pushing too much i don't know but like I think if so percussion had adopted that mentality about the third 2 a.m. load in to a studio in February and then having to return the cargo van and then walk to the bus at knock it home till five in the morning, the third time that happened, I, I know I would have quit. Mm. If I had, if at the time the sort of energy in the air was, if it sucks and it's really hard and frustrating and you're feeling jaded, then that's proof that the system ahead of you is fucked up. So don't deal with it, you know? Mm -hmm. And so again, like I'm, I'm trying to say something, trying to hold both thoughts in my head of like, yeah, I get it. I get it. On the other hand, I, I know what I'm going to sound like on stage because I've walked into that ring and been punched in the face 7,000 times and it sucks every time, but I know what I'm going to sound like now, now before I make a note, you don't. That's the difference. And it's like, and that's the thing. It's just like, yeah, I know it sucks to keep plugging, but oh my God, you just need to walk. You need to be on stage so that when you're on it, you're not afraid. Yeah. <laughs> and the other way to do that is to walk out, get knocked out by Mike Tyson seven times in a row, <laughs> and then step back and, and learn. Now, is what, do you, is, was my tangent somewhat accurate, what I said earlier? Yeah. Well, it actually, <laughs> as you days. were describing it, it made me think of an experience that I had last week, actually. Um, In town, there's like a community band, Mm -hmm. and there is a junior band for elementary, middle school kids. And one of my private students, who is going into fourth grade, um, her parents brought her, and we went to her very first wind band rehearsal. Mm -hmm. And I've been working with her for a few years, but um, she was playing a snare drum part, and she saw all these rhythms that she knew, but the band was playing, and the band was playing so fast. And she like, and I was standing next to her, and she like broke down. Yeah, she like started to cry, and you know, and I was there with her, and I was like, okay, 
Let's take a breath. Like, let's look at these rhythms. You know this. Mm-hmm. You know, pig, pig, tiger, pig. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> Mine was Mississippi Jello. It was ba da 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 da. I couldn't play the room. My, my teacher, Joan Wenzel, I'll never forget that she's like, pick up the birdcage, clean up the birdcage, Mississippi Jello. And I was like, all right, oh. I got it. You know? Yeah, I can do that. Um, yeah. But I, I felt in that moment, I felt her having her first rehearsal and then mm-hmm. being on the other side of that, like, no, you have to do this. You have to go through this. And then the next time it's easier. And then the next time it's easier. And to use your fighter analogy, yeah, like you've taken those punches. And there's something to that, too. And I think what we're getting at is that you you talked about holding these two ideas. Mm-hmm. I think what we're getting at is that multiple things can be true at the same time. And yeah, like, that's that's really messy and confusing, yeah. especially as like a young artist coming up. Like, d- well, do I keep thing- fighting or what? Like, no, well, this is maybe the the sort of like kind of the answer to the question I asked you earlier about like diagnosing ten years ago and and for me twenty years ago, Josh. Yeah, it's the it's the sort of blurring of the binary into the sort of nuance, like everything fall wa- like water all you know, water is is incredibly nuanced. It goes into every crack. It does and it settles to the bottom all the time. And I want my thought process to be more like water rather than mud. You know, mm. that sort of moves slowly and if you press on it here, like I kinda want it to fall into the cracks. And I I had a therapist once and whether or not it was she you know she was a good therapist or a bad therapist, I I don't know, but what she said to me was really meaningful and has stuck with me and she said your your initial feelings about something aren't proof of anything mm-hmm. they're just your feelings and th- now they may later prove that you were right but having fear you know like i my dad died of lou gehrig's disease so i have an irrational fear of nervous twitches every time my finger goes Burp, i'm like als <laughs> you know mm-hmm. and like she's like no 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 you have a fear it's not placed in a accurately and so I, I feel like I want I, I want to teach students now of like when they have this just like oh I can't do this because of all this other thing it's like well I want you to uh, to diagnose are you saying that because you're afraid of failure or are you afraid of the judgment that might come because somebody doesn't like the way you played something or are you genuinely being prevented from doing what it is you want to do because of you know a systemic barrier or something like that which what is the, because fear fear is different. That is, that's something I can't, I can't fix for you, really. That's like, you got to get, you just got to put your foot in the ring, take a few punches and realize, oh, that didn't hurt as bad as I thought. Right. I can take that punch. Okay, cool. And then you get into the third round. You're like, oh man, I can't take those punches anymore. Great. And the way you talk to a student who's in fifth grade at their first band rehearsal, you did great. You're not going to go suck it up, buttercup. Like, yeah. like your fight, trust me, when you're 30, you're going to understand. It's like, no, 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 no. You, you talk to a fifth grader, like you're killing it. Do you know where I was in fifth grade? <laughs> Not as good as you. Like you can <laughs> yeah. do that. And then, but when you're talking to a, a grad student or a doctoral student, and they're and they look at you and they're like, "I can't do this because you know, like I'm never going to be good enough." And like, uh, that's when I'm going to grab them by the shirt collar and be like, "What are you doing then?" Mm-hmm. Like, like at some point, you got to take responsibility for your own thing and stop blaming other people. And, mm-hmm. um, and so, but when to do that? I think as a teacher. For me, that's been the hardest thing because I've made mistakes. I've grabbed someone by the shirt, not literally, but like metaphorically grabbed them by the educational shirt collar and then realized like, oh, they just want to be an accountant. 
<laughs> and that's okay. That's awesome. Like, I want that to be that for them. Uh, yeah. Okay, that's fine. Let's sh- let's push you over this way. Um, mm-hmm. But how to do it as a teacher? I mean, it, let me let, let's transition a little bit. You, I, I want to blow a little smoke up your ass here because okay. I have blow seen away. you in, in particular working with young students. Um, your online presence with your like interactive teaching and how you do stuff with students online has sort of thwarted my my narrative of how to teach on zoom i had Mm. to teach remotely to college kids and i think my personality is just one like i rely heavily on the rat-a-tat in the room and being able to like smell people and see them and Mm. know if they've had something to what they've eaten before rehearsal like all of those things like are important to me and i can't get that on zoom and so i just was like a deer in the headlights you on the other hand seemed to actually like feel like it was it made you like a superhero and i'm kind of curious like it seemed like all those kids fucking loved you and pardon my language if they're watching this but like how how did you go about building that that sort of educational presence online and what were what were some of your inspirations and and things that you were thinking about because i know a lot of people think about it but don't actually do myself i never did look my office has looked like this since day one there's nothing interactive about my office and your office is like like an educational toy toy land here right right oh man uh okay so i guess the first thing that i'll say is that like elementary school kids are definitely different than college kids uh (laughs) however you know there is an maybe an approach to it I, i think what i identified very early on um, when when I knew that we were I was going to be teaching tasked with teaching elementary music online, which seems impossible and kind of stupid to like even try to do that, my goal, my approach was to just like make these kids smile hmm. because at the end of the day that 's what they 're going to remember that 's really what they 're going to take away. and so yeah, like we 're going to learn some stuff we 're going to learn how to clap rhythms and like listen and and all of this stuff but i tried to make every class like a party basically like (laughs) and you know dancing and moving and and um enjoying music and and again just like smiling so like an inspiration was maybe like i don't know mr rogers (laughs) no that's i mean it's per. I mean, that's like i think of mr rogers i think of dan zanes do you know dan zanes no i don't oh my god owen Take take an hour today and just go down the Dan Zanes rabbit hole because he he's like a okay. like a rock star in the kid music world, uh, and it's really good. Great, really good. I, I think you I think you dig in. Z a n e s Dan Zanes. Zanes, and to your point too, like uh, when we went back in person. So the final quarter, the school board voted that it was safe enough for us to go back in person. Mm-hmm. And what was really wild is um, there was a good number of kids who. Like, once we got in person, they were like, wait, you're the guy on the screen. Like, you, you were on my iPad. <laughs> they don't recognize you in 3D, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we almost were, like, the, the teachers were like TV stars, almost. And so wow. there were times, especially when I did my puppet stuff, that I felt like I very much was making a variety show and entertaining, right? Mm-hmm. And so... the. the speaking of like blurring lines like where where is the line between entertainment and education and was it okay and proper for me to approach it like entertainment or like uh-huh. a, a show uh every day yet yes and no um 
Mostly, yes. But I'd yeah, say. That, that 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 was my approach was just like having fun with the kids. And what I sh- I will say that what I shared online were the good moments. Like there was oh, a I'm, lot of oh yeah yeah stuff. That, That's what that everybody happened, shares but, online is only the good stuff, right? Yeah, like we <laughs> so, curate yeah. we curate the good stuff, the image yeah. that we want to see. And this is actually let me throw something back at you, a question for you, please. Um, because I feel like you are a person like your online presence. I feel is really trying to create discourse around the idea of authenticity mm-hmm. online. Like you, you made a post a few weeks ago about like, I, I bet that the way you talk here is not the way you talk in person. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think I just want to say like, I really appreciate you going on that path. Hmm. And like, even if I don't comment or, or anything on your stuff, like I feel like witnessing your process of trying to think about authenticity online and in general has, hmm. has been helped me grow and, and hmm. think about that, that space as well. So, um, this is kind of a new topic, but yeah. can you, can you speak to that a little bit? Like, what is it? What does it mean to be authentic online? And this is connected to like what we curate on social media mm-hmm. and then going back to my students, like I'm sharing the good moments and yeah. yeah. Well, that's a great question and I appreciate you asking it and I appreciate the kind words. Um, I think that something I've learned about myself, my own personality is I don't have like uh, Gray McMurray is a guitar player that so has worked with a bunch I remember getting in an argument with Gray about some just something dumb. We were having drinks and we were just chewing the fat, and I I sort of said something like, "Yeah, I don't, I can't fake my way through a conversation." And I I envy people who are able to like if they're really sad, put on a like, "I'm here, let's do it," like to put on that vibe, and not in a way of like you're putting on something, you're pretending, you're not, you're being fit. Like that's just some people are able to to sort of be situationally appropriate (laughs) all the time and for me if i if i'm in a bad mood after a show i don't want to talk to anybody i want to go away i don't want i don't want your high fives i don't want like and it's not because i don't like you it's just like i can't pretend to be psyched about your psychedness about what we just did Mm. it's not I, i i don't have that ability and i feel bad about it because relationships are important to me but I also feel like it's important that when I'm interacting with somebody that they're getting the person that I am and mm. sometimes I just don't want to be I don't want to be a Eeyore <laughs> to somebody so I'm just not going to do it and anyway Gray was like that's the thing I love the most about you is I know exactly how you're feeling all the time mm. just by the way you're carrying yourself and I think that I think long and hard before I post stuff that if I'm and I'm I'm quicker at it now, but it's like I just say it out loud. Hmm. Like, would I say this? Would I say this on a concert stage in Columbus, Ohio? Would I say this on a concert stage in Des Moines, Iowa? Would I say this on a concert stage in San Francisco? Whoa. Would I say this in Austin? What could I could I say this in Montreal? Could I say this in Kiev, Ukraine? Like, and the answer is always yes, because I've, that's there's a wild n- filter. I like there's that. nothing I've ever said online that even looking back at my posts, like you get the memories on Facebook, like, like 10 years ago, you said this. Uh Yeah. It's an immature, more immature version, a less nuanced version of myself. But yeah, I would still stand up and be like, yep, I said this. (laughs) And 
what I what I've noticed since Trump got elected, Trump is why I started the podcast five mm-hmm. years, six years ago, or whatever it was, because I saw Trump getting elected. And we're going to get into politics here, but I but it is sure. the answer to your question. Um, I grew up in a very conservative area of Ohio, uh, in a Rush Limbaugh household, and. I grew up in part of the country where right now the term is white grievance politics, you know, mm-hmm. and when Trump got elected, I saw the vast majority of the communities that I was running in prior to Trump. And I, I will say the contemporary music community was a big voice in this, basically saying that where I'm from is filled with Nazis. And I became afraid to say where I'm from. I became mm. afraid to say that, you know, I'm a, I'm a liberal Democrat. I think I've always voted Democrat. I absolutely, like, want people to go through their day with the least amount of stress possible. I want to help. Like, I want everybody to be happy and comfortable. All of that stuff. Yeah. But the inability in 2015 when he got elected for incredibly brilliant people to not resort to just being like, everybody from rural Midwest is a racist. Mm-hmm. Or everyone that voted for Trump. Like, everybody this is a classic, right? Everyone that voted for Trump is a fucking Nazi. Fuck off. When, like, and at the yeah. time, I was like, <laughs> I know several two-time Obama voters who voted for Trump. So now they're all of a sudden racist? And the answer was yes. And I, I just, like, I couldn't figure out... That made no sense to me. Like, I just couldn't figure out... Mm-hmm. And then as time... And so I was just like, I can't participate in that chatter, so I want to go talk to people one-on-one. And so that's why I started the podcast, because I felt like if people want to know my thoughts, like I want my thoughts to be, you know, not a mile wide and an inch deep. I want them to be an inch wide and a mile deep. And so Mm -hmm. I just started doing that on every podcast. This course has not gotten better. It's gotten worse since 2015. And that's why I keep posting some of the things I keep posting, because the conversation is still around. Now we're in the conversation around anti-racism. And again, totally get it. I understand it. I I've, I know what the history around the you know the, the 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 British slave trade, how it went through the like I understand the sixteen nineteen project like teaching history. Yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. But now we're calling all of the white Midwestern voters drug addicts because they don't quite understand why why racial tensions are they, what they are in the country. Mm. And I'm like, you you don't know poor white people. I have I have I have relatives who are on social safety nets mm-hmm. whose husbands are getting beat up by cops on a regular basis because they're looking for his meth dealer. Mm. He's white. Now, that's anecdotal. The stats don't bear out that most white people I mean of course like I work in black communities all of that stuff is basically accurate. But on the granular level when I talk to my cousin she's like fuck everybody on the left like nobody mm-hmm. cares about me mm-hmm. i don't have white privilege now and i can talk to her i'm like jess but you know like, there's a nuanced thing to that statement too but she's like come to my house and show me how privileged i am mm-hmm. you know and so again like it's the the inability i i feel in our general sort of body politic and especially online mm-hmm. to hold these two thoughts of like josh quill and absolutely loathes racism 
I've seen it in pan yards. I've seen cops walk right by me and go right to the eight-year-old kid playing steel pan <laughs> and search their bag, not mine. Damn. Like, <clears throat> on the other hand, my cousin is still a person, too. And to just paint with broad brushes because it's the narrative, it's the political narrative that's acceptable online right now. Boy, oh boy, Owen. I just don't see... If what you want is my cousin to be... To hang out with a black person and get on the one and understand what all the nuances are. Calling my cousin a drug addict and a white privileged person who doesn't understand... Just doesn't understand and they'll come... They'll, they'll understand it someday whenever they they get the Lord in their life, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it, doesn't, yeah. it just... It doesn't work. That method doesn't work. And so not yeah. being like, and I, I can't, I'm saying this now to you and I could probably get roasted online for even saying this, but like the inability to sort of reconcile these two things, it's this online inability to have nuance that I feel is, I think it's the thing that's going to, I think this is why, this is why empires fall, Owen. <laughs> I don't mm. think, it's, I don't think empires fall because a lot of bad people decide to make the Roman empire fall. I think what happened in the Roman empire or the Greek empire or whatever was like, there's a few things that happen. Society starts to sort of do a thing. Everybody's talk like everybody talks about cancel culture. Mm-hmm. And there's articles being written right now of that cancel culture doesn't exist. It's like, well, you're writing an article about it. Like, like, and so it's like nobody's able to start. And so eventually, a hundred, you know, thirty years goes by, and nobody's able to put a hand on it. Yeah, and the thing falls apart. And if I, I, I hope I'm wrong, Owen. But to answer your question, mm. uh, I, I, it's important to me to somehow plant a seed in people's minds that. People are, people are messy, and you can't. You just you just can't put anybody in a box, and that is. That's a big. That's my big. Sorry, I'm not answering your question very well. That's my big Achilles heel right now. Is yeah. every time I see somebody when I see you know, when you talk about the orchestra thing when I see somebody post something that's like, look at all of this. Look at all the section leaders in this orchestra. Aren't they all white? Mm-hmm. I understand it. The answer is yes. But what's the next 10 words? Like, what do you do? No one's doing that. It's like, we're just, and I'm like, okay, I get it. I get it. I get it. But like, you're just, you're calling a ball on a strike. But what I need you to do is like, now throw a curveball at me. Mm. Don't just, you're just underhanding this obvious, the most obvious thing. You know, somebody pointed out to so percussion that we're all four white men. And I'm like, it took zero skill, zero observational nuance zero anything to point that out mm-hmm. we gotta move we gotta get past that i'm sorry like we gotta if we're if every day we're talking about the most obvious thing right and no one is providing any sort of nuance on how to crack that i just don't know yeah man i i feel i feel all of that for sure um it actually makes me think of uh there's a podcast that i listen to and it kind of a What's the word for it? Controversial podcast, uh, Chapo Trap House. I've heard and, of it, but I and I've heard of it through. I listen to a lot of comedian podcasts. Sorry, fighters and okay. comedians are my two like go tos these days. 
Oh, that's cool. The buy-in for both of those fields is so intense. Like people are either going to mm. laugh at you or you're not, and you're either going to get knocked out or you're going to walk out conscious. Like one of those two things is happening. <laughs> and so, like they, they, there's no BS in those worlds. Like they just say exactly how it is. And I, I really, right. really appreciate that. About the, but I've heard about the Chapo Trap House thing through. Yeah, just never you, you should listen to it. It's really interesting. Um, but they were they were talking about how, like they're they were kind of um, diagnosing. Something similar to what you're talking about, but they were saying that like Facebook functions like everyone is a freshman in college in a Mm -hmm. dorm room Mm -hmm. and everyone is like just spewing out all of these ideas and opinions and whatever. And like to to your point about like, you know, calling a a ball or, or a strike or like judging these things or calling out these things is that like social media and specifically Facebook, it's doing what it's designed to do. Mm hmm really well and that is create a platform to like share what you think without nuance and so like that that might be the 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 problem and even going back to the orchestra and like wanting it to be something that it's not like um it is very toxic um that that there is that there are these platforms twitter too twitter is just like i don't know if you spend time on twitter but it's like one big yelling match zero time it it's really it's really intense um but yeah i think i love this idea of the podcast being a space for nuance being a space for like having words a conversation looking at each other mm-hmm. to to like hash out ideas as a counterpoint to social media where the majority of our political discourse takes place is mm-hmm. on this like really poorly designed platform yep. for discourse <laughs> we're, we're all like we've all been given like a like a what is it a ford pinto yeah and we're just like and we're on we're at daytona 500 just driving around that thing yes. as fast, and wheels are flying off but we're all just like <laughs> come on motherfucker like yeah and, exactly and we're wondering why we're getting in car wrecks and why like the heaters don't work we're all sweating and like we're not saying then then it's like you you i posted a thing the other day where i, I talked about like a lot of you are out here spending all day on comment threads and wasting your time. And it was like, I got the most likes of any of my recent posts. Wow. Then there was like this later that night I was on, I saw somebody, a, a, a guy I know in the steel band world post something about the vaccine that was opposed to the vaccine, or he asked a question about the vaccine sort of in a flippant way. And I, I chimed in <laughs> and I got roasted and it was just, and then I kept firing back. And then a total stranger on that comment thread posted a screenshot of my post from earlier in the day. <laughs> and I just was like, touche, madam. And I, and I just signed off because mm-hmm. I, like I posted a thing and then I fell victim to the very thing that I knew I didn't want to do. And it yeah. just goes to show, and I listened to a podcast uh, that was in, in a Sam Harris podcast. And oh yeah. 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 About the guy who was in the room when Facebook was invented. Sure, and like, and uh, I think that was the guy who made the social dilemma movie. Like, I think you're the, right. Yeah. That, yeah, yeah. But he talked about the the mechanism to sort of refresh stuff on your phone and your iPad, and how like when you're scrolling, you're just doing this, and how psychologically like this is a like yeah whatever, and you're just looking, mm-hmm. you're just looking, but when you swipe down, that's why slot machines are like this. Mm. Because you're pulling down and you're waiting. And there's something like, there's something about that wait. That dopamine. So so they purposely made on all the platforms the refresh button or the refresh thing to be something you swipe down. 
you are on a, you are on a slot machine all day. Mm-hmm. And it was a purposeful choice. Bro, that is that's so fun. But it's like that, and and when you look back, like that's the thing in a thousand years when they're like, how how did how did the, how did humans fall apart in twenty twenty or twenty thirty five? You mm-hmm. look back and you're like, oh, it, it turns out that we found out that on you know November twenty third, twenty thirty four, we we had enough metadata to see that of the seven billion people on the planet, six point eight billion of them were swiping down at the same time, and humanity just can't sustain that. <laughs> you know, like, like that, uh, like, is if that would be so embarrassing for humans, like poor dinosaurs, at least they were, it was a fluke for them. They, yeah. they, they ruled for like 14 billion or 64 billion years, million years or whatever. And then the comet hit. But if yeah. we go away because we just couldn't stop this. Mm-hmm. <sighs> anyway, that's why I post on Facebook and that's why I started a social, <laughs> that's why I started the podcast. <laughs> and just in terms of another, this is another thing I've seen enough people post online that just drives me nuts. And that, Somebody will be like, oh, I love your podcast, and I love listening to your podcast, and I'll see the same person be like, Joe Rogan is trash. I'm like, Mm -hmm. okay, do you want to know why I'm doing a podcast? Do you want to know why you're on my podcast, Owen Davis? (laughs) Because of Joe Rogan. Because five years ago, Joe Rogan was the only person talking to politicians, talking to people, and do I agree with everything he says? No. I don't agree with everything you said. You could go back through this podcast and find a few things that you and I butted heads on. But like... yeah. He really, I, he was the only person I heard that was like really willing to go in. And he's very curious. Like, go yeah. listen. Anybody who thinks Joe Rogan is trash, go listen to any of the Neil deGrasse Tyson podcasts that he did. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I guarantee and, and you, I if you come out of those, special, if you come oh, out of those thinking that Joe Rogan's trash, you are someone who is not interested, interesting, or interesting. Mm. <laughs> just because I, I, I can't. Just I was going to say an, another thing about Joe Rogan. Um, I I agree with you. Like problematic at times but like curious and and interesting conversations for sure and uh i will say something about joe rogan's um podcast his whole platform Mm -hmm. is that it's uh long form yes in and that's what i love about it in a world that's very like soundbite and like short um Mm -hmm. you know you could watch a two-hour conversation with neil degrasse tyson or whomever Or, Tice, really or Tulsi Gabbard or Bernie Sanders. Like, it, like you can go mm-hmm. online and think what you want about Tulsi Gabbard because you heard – you saw one Vox article that took you <laughs> two minutes to read. Mm-hmm. Or go listen to her for, for two and a half hours talk and make a call. And yeah. you may still come to the same conclusion. That's fine. That's mm-hmm. totally fine. But I know you only read that Vox article and your entire worldview about Tulsi Gabbard is now based on a Vox article. Right. You sure you want to keep moving like that? Would you like your entire light world – would you like somebody to judge you? That's the other thing. I, I don't – I rarely post anything – I don't post anything about anybody in particular calling them out unless it's like my mother <laughs> because – or my wife. And I still and I haven't done that because I know them. Right. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. So I don't know you. I don't even know Joe Rogan. So I'm not even – like I'm not – I just mm. – to me – and that's an important – that's an important thing. So Yeah. No, that that's real. That's real. Uh I do want to pick up a thread that you laid down mm-hmm. in this, and it's the idea of like the difference between diagnosing the problem mm-hmm. and then doing the work to mm-hmm. to fix it. Mm-hmm. And um, so recently, in the past like t- two months, I've gotten into TikTok, and TikTok is a really I love it. It's like mm-hmm. a really interesting place. Um, however, I I made this video so you can like stitch 
a thing. So like you, you get a video and mm-hmm. then you play a little moment of it and then you give your commentary on it. And I made this stitch with this guy who was posting a video of a um, Bitcoin uh, cryptocurrency mining farm. And it was like this huge industrial building. And there's like thousands of the like these basically computers, like mm-hmm. servers running all of this stuff. And it sounds like, um, you know, like an aircraft taking off, like it's so loud. And I and then I stitched it and I made this commentary like basically saying that humans are so stupid. Like we, we made a paper currency, which is not sustainable. We have to cut down trees. And then we made this new cryptocurrency, which is digital. However, we have to like make all these huge uh, computer mining farms in the middle of South America. And like, that's not sustainable. And like, why are we so dumb? Like, why can't we get it right? And someone comment, I only got one comment and it was this guy who was like, okay, you, you just diagnosed a flaw. Like, why don't you figure out how to fix it? And I just responded, okay. <laughs> um, but an- another response that I had was like, no, it actually is enough to just like point out a flaw in a thing. Like, I, I feel as though like that, that perception of of identifying a flaw and, and pointing it out and framing it in such a way that maybe mm-hmm. will make people think differently about it mm-hmm. or even yourself think think differently about it. I think that there's value in that mm-hmm. and that's um, substantive. Um, however, you know, to your to your point too, like how do we begin doing the work of fixing the flaws that we that we identify? Yeah, I think I, that's that's the hard part. No, it's a good, it's a great question. It's a great point. It's one that like I don't disagree with you a hundred percent on what you're saying. Me, sorry, I agree with you mostly in terms of like, <laughs> um, you know, the the value and you have to know what the problem is first before you can fix it. Right. And uh, I'm trying to figure out where my biases are here and like where you know where I'm missing the boat, but. I would say the thing that I'm less frustrated when somebody says, you know, somebody makes a post about like, you know, the W, you know, the, uh, whatever the world trade organization mm-hmm. or, you know, monetary policy or the, the fed, like I, not that I don't have any skin in that game. I, we all do to some degree. I just, I don't understand it. And I, mm-hmm. there's so many other things in my life that I'm actively trying to understand that make my day move forward and like help other people and are very specifically geared towards like the steel band world or publishing or whatever, like yeah, to figure out the feds monetary policy. Like I just can't do it. <laughs> so I'm just not going to get upset if somebody is like constantly calling out the world trade organization. To me, the, the issue where I get a little bit like, like, okay, let's, wrap it up, move it along, get to the next step already is when I see like the same people posting about the same problem in the music community. Mm-hmm. And I think, oh, I where feel you actually like, can do something about yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, I think, I think sometimes some people think they feel like they're in the music community and because of the way social, like the, the, the perception they have about social media is they look at a group like so percussion or they look at the New York Phil or Carnegie hall as this, as the world trade organization. Like, there's no way I would ever have any effect on what they're doing. So I'm just going to call this thing out and move on. It's like, well, you know, there's a, you can just email me, Mm. you know, and like, you can't just email the WTO and get a meeting, but actually you could (laughs) email Carnegie Hall and talk to somebody. 
Like, right. yeah, they're, they're big orders. It may take you four or five emails. It's going to take you 4,500 emails to get to the WTO. To yeah. Carnegie Hall, like, there's a, there's a guy named Sam Livingston who's a soci student who works there now. Like, mm. uh, Lincoln Center. Like, uh, I know – just don't assume that you can't and – I, and I would say this. The other thing that I, I just personally feel is, like, keep your beefs private and your successes public. Hmm. Like, if you've got a beef with an organization, don't assume that you can't have a relationship with them. It's when people go online, you have no relationship with Supercussion. You go online, you light them on fire and expect us to be like, oh, you know what? You are 100% right. We're super sorry. It's just not the way it works. That's why you don't have a lot of genuine relationships that begin over a social media feud. Mm -hmm. I have a ton of relationships that have begun over a Facebook message because of something that happened publicly and they message me and they're like, Hey man, I'm a little confused about this. Can we chat? Yeah. And now five years later, I'm getting beers with them and like we're working together. And it's like, that's how relationships begin. Yeah. And I, I worry that folks in our field think that online relationships are the same thing and they are not. Mm. And like you can ruin in-person relationships way easier online than you can in person. Yep. And that's something I think people don't understand. Like I see people talking shit about us all the time or about rep we people program or about composers that we work with or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they're not maybe directly talking about us, but it's like you just shit talked somebody I've worked with for 20 years. Do you yeah. honestly think I'm going to call you to hang out? <laughs> mm. Like, and then you post about wondering why you're not working with me or us, mm. or you're not get, you're not in the club. And that now you're being excluded. It's like, you've been ranting online for five years about how terrible I am. Yeah. Are you crazy? Like, what, what, would you say that stuff to my face? That's right. my, that's my, like, you wouldn't say that on a concert hall stage. Yeah. So why would you expect me to, you know, and, and that it's like that one side of relationship where I've now got to come to them in order to make it work. I got too many people in my life, bro. I'm just not going to do it. And I think mm-hmm. in 10 years, you're going to have a lot of musicians, a lot of people in our field who were in this very insular sort of social media uh, generation, yeah, that's going to be wondering why the phone isn't ringing. Hmm. And I'm I'm happy to tell people, but I'm telling them now. So if you think you're one of those people whose the phone's not ringing, and you go back and look at your thread, and you've just you've been nothing but calling people out all the time, yeah, do a little work. <laughs> that's all I'm saying. Do a no, little bit. Yeah. Do a bit. A little bit of the self work, and maybe your phone will ring a little bit more. That, that's real. And I, I think this kind of segues nicely into discussing, and this is a heavy topic and deep, mm-hmm. and, um, but the idea of cancel culture. Mm-hmm. And um, like, I think that I've experienced it um, personally from, mm-hmm. from both sides of things. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I also maybe want to discuss the, the idea of like, Cancel culture versus something that I like to call call out culture, mm-hmm. <laughs> where again you're you're calling something out to to um, to to make something happen, to make a change happen, uh, r- rectify something versus cancel culture, which is calling out for the only purpose of like burning it down, right? Mm-hmm. So. To me, there there is a difference between these two things. Like one is actually restorative. Um, in, in the education world, we 
we study, uh, we go to trainings for restorative practices where, mm-hmm. you know, you, you have two people, one person harmed the other person, and you identify the harm, mm-hmm. and then you work together to rectify the harm. And through that, you can actually build relationships and, like, meaningful things versus cancel culture where it's like, <laughs> yeah, again, just, just burning it down. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if you make a distinction in your mind about these these two things that I've thrown out there. Is there a difference? Is there a space for, for call-out culture? Is there a usefulness for it? Or does it, because of our society and social media, does it always kind of just revert back to cancel culture? That's a good question, and I appreciate you framing it that way and asking it that way. Um, you know, I personally have never been really threatened or of cancellation or anything like that, but... I will say that I have a lot of fear. I mean, I do a podcast that's unedited and I talk about things with you that I, in this very podcast, somebody could take a, a five second clip and make me look like Richard Spencer, you know? And <laughs> so I have that anxiety that sure. that could happen. Um, I also, the anxiety is metered or, or sort of is mitigated because I'm a big believer in context and the proof is there. So like if anybody wants to listen to the tape of our conversation and prove I'm Richard Spencer, I would be hard pressed to have somebody actually listen to this whole podcast and come away with that. So, um, I, let me ask you real quick in these training sessions you do, you're in the restorative sessions where there's one person who's harmed another and you have to identify it and then fix it. Does it happen in person or does it happen in an online forum? Mm. So this is specifically in the context of, of like elementary school. So it is always in person. Right. Um, to me, but, that's... Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Maybe, maybe that is the, the big difference is that it does have to be in person. However, like I feel as though like if we, we meaning, I don't know, society, if we become privy to restorative practices that it could happen on an online space or maybe that's a utopian fantasy of mine, but sorry. Go I ahead. don't know. I'm skeptical of that utopia <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, only based on the data I have now. So like, yeah. <laughs> again, in 10 years we may have evolved to have a, a more nuanced ability to function in that world. But mm-hmm. to me, I, I see that to me, the fundamental premise is that if it's happening online, I think there's an inherent default unhealthiness to it that everybody needs to acknowledge to go onto an online forum and do either call out or cancellation is coming from a fundamentally uh, hobbled place or fundamentally sort of, you're not fully grounded. You have to operate in a certain way without tone, without nuance, without context, without knowing, is the other person taking a shit while you're talking to them? Are they eating? Are they dropping their kid off? Who's crying right now? Like what's happening there? You know, and, and until we can get that out of the mix, I think we just have to look at this these these sort of things in that context. Mm-hmm. I think calling something out is not something is not inherently bad. I just feel like the default nature should always be like, you know, what's the the rule? Like, it, you you got to offer three times. You know, somebody's got to turn you down three times before mm. you stop offering, right? It's rude to keep being like, can I do this? Can I do this? Can I buy this dinner for you? And they turn you down three times, then you got to stop. Like that's sort of the unwritten social contract we have. When you're at a restaurant and you need the check, you just do like this. It's a polite way of saying like, rather than be like, oh, you know, yeah, we've agreed on some things. I, I think that calling stuff out, if our default is three times privately, 
before you go online. Mm. I, I just think I think ninety percent of the stuff online goes away. Whoa, um, that's real. I would say canceling is an act of malice, always, mm-hmm. because you're always trying to rid society of somebody's ideas, and that is a malicious act. Regardless of and and I say that because the ACLU says that. The ACLU defends Nazis when they march in Skokie, Illinois, because the freedom of speech is fundamental to our ability as humans to learn about ideas, learn what the bad ones are, grind your good one up against the bad one, and sharpen your tools. Mm. Um, Because other societies from which the United States has spawned from over over humanity has come from places where freedom of speech is not important. Yeah. They could throw you in jail for saying the king smelled bad. You know, like that's where it goes. And so when people who are who are like First Amendment folks, like that's why that stuff feels so scary. That feels like a slippery slope when we start to be like, oh, we're going to cancel Louis C.K. because of a thing or we're going to cancel. What do you mean by cancel? You can't cancel Louis C.K. You can't cancel Dave Chappelle because you don't like his jokes. Mm-hmm. Where's it? What do you mean you're going to cancel when you're then going online and trying to cancel somebody, you're saying to everybody else, you don't believe this person should exist. Mm-hmm. That's an act of malice. And mm-hmm. there are many people, I don't believe Donald Trump <laughs> should be around. I don't like him at all. I, don't, I think he was one of the most devastating political figures to have graced the White House of all time. Mm-hmm. I don't think he should be canceled. I don't know what that means. Like, what, what does it mean? Because you know who's back? Dave Chappelle. Yeah. Bigger than ever. You know who's making yeah. more money now? Louis C.K. You know mm. who's like, you can't cancel um, Kathy Griffin. Mm. You don't, You may not like her jokes. You may, you know, on the right, whenever she held the Trump head up, it's like, cancel her. It's like, okay, fine. She was gone for like, what, six months? Mm-hmm. And now she's back? It's because you can't. Like, it's malicious. And it. She, there was no crime committed, you know? And so I feel like that, to me, that's the distinction. I hope I'm never part of a cancellation Meaning not me getting canceled, but somebody else. Because I think that means that I've stopped seeing the other person as a person. Um, and I want to hold that true for everybody, from Louis C.K. to Trump to to Kathy Griffin to me. Like, mm-hmm. I may make a horrible mistake. I may say something off color that I don't mean because I was really mad. I don't know. I have to allow for that potentiality to be there, Owen. And if Mm -hmm. I've gone through my day ridding the world, blocking people from my Facebook feed and demanding other people do that too, and I'm not held to that same standard, Mm. I'm sorry. I just can't do it. And I think it means then that some people think I'm okay with like, you know, I'm okay with like vitriolic people in my life. It's like, no, I just don't think Dave Chappelle is vitriolic. And I, you know, you're welcome to because you saw five minutes of his stand-up. But I, to me, I just, I just have a real hard time. So I, anyway, I think with call out, mm-hmm. three privates, then you go online, right. maybe. <laughs> right. You know, because yeah. maybe after the three private reachouts, you've realized that it's actually not a hill you want to die on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then okay, so just throwing out so. Uh, a lot of the the people that you you've talked about have been quote unquote canceled for doing like 
a controversial mm-hmm. action or seeing a controversial the Louis C.K. Louis C.K. is in a little different category. Like his yes. was a, there was a sexual thing going on, yes. but like I think there's nuance to that too that I I don't want to weigh in on. But I but I okay his thing is a different a slightly different thing. Dave Chappelle just made some jokes about trans folks that I think folk people didn't like, but he and Kathy Griffin they made jokes that society maybe isn't psyched about. Louis mm-hmm. in a different Louis in a different world. He's not getting yeah. canceled because of his jokes, <laughs> right? And and I think that that was where my question was getting at. Yeah. It's like there there are parameters to this, and there are lines that can be crossed where like yeah. you are, uh, you know, saying something that like leads can't, has the potential to to lead to a death or a hate crime, you know. And and speaking of Trump, like this is a really great. Example, like he's banned from Facebook for three years, two years, something like this. Like, how, how does that stack up to to your worldview of like Trump shouldn't be canceled? Yet, you know, it, in a way, it, it can be argued that like his his speech, um, you know, provoked one six. Yeah, it's a that's an it's an interesting question, and it's it's where my hypocrisy sort of rears its ugly head. Mm-hmm. I'm glad Trump's out of our lives on social media. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think, and again, like there's a reason we have first degree murder, second degree murder, third degree murder, manslaughter, involuntary <laughs> manslaughter. Like you can't, yeah. you know, if, if an old woman just accidentally runs somebody over at a stoplight, that's not the same as John Wayne Gacy. So right. we can't just give her the death penalty, right? <laughs> right. To me, right. when I look at somebody like Trump. In terms of how they've utilized their speech, yeah, it has gotten to a point where it's damn near John Wayne Gacy, like where you're you're literally calling for people to storm a Capitol building, right? Yeah, where Dave Chappelle falls down in terms of a jokes jokes he tells on stage about people, like yeah, he tells jokes about a lot of different demographics of people. Like he's not just walking out talking about trans people, and I can say this because I've watched every one of his specials, and mm-hmm. I would say five percent <laughs> of his jokes are about trans people. The rest of it is all about race and all these other things. You know, um, to me, that's that falls in the like the like. I wouldn't even say involuntary manslaughter because it's it's such a different context. He's not calling. He's not on stage calling for people to actively go after trans people right yeah so there's there's a level of nuance here now as a trans i'm not trans but i could understand i can empathize hearing a joke about yours like if somebody was making if he did a whole bit about guy, white guys with beards who have sweaty armpits like <laughs> i could understand why i would take that personally right um but i do I, to me that's that's where where i think trump falls into the category of yep it's pretty clear you're 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 spoiling you're you're poisoning the well yeah and uh again like just i i but i but but again like i don't know yeah life's so much more peaceful with him out of my life but Mm -hmm. i also think that the way for good ideas to go away is for them to be in the sunlight with the with the good ones Mm -hmm. and the longer trump's away the more people are away with him yeah, and hiding. And, and here's a dark prediction, but I, I'm confident. I say this with no, no, uh, sort of, ah, maybe I'm wrong. Trump's going to be president in 2024. Whoa. You heard it here, folks. You heard it here. <laughs> now, let me clarify. I yeah. don't want him to be president. Ah, uh. 
But let me put this. Actually, let me let me clarify a little bit. A Trump will be president in 2024. Oh, okay, like a Trump and, 2.0. But I wouldn't be surprised at all if it's Donald. And I say this no. because, well, let's look. Let's call balls and strikes. Joe Biden won by 42,000 votes, electorally speaking. Mm. Won by seven million in the popular vote. Mm-hmm. But that's not how we elect people. Right. He won by a narrower margin than Donald Trump won by in 2015, electorally speaking. Well, I think all the stuff we've been talking about, cancel culture, online culture, the way that we talk to different demographics, the way we try to enact the methods in which we enact social change online, yeah. Yeah. are feeding, are watering the seeds of Biden's demise. And I... That's why I have anxiety. I'm just like, you all clearly want Trump again in 2024, don't you? <laughs> mm. Keep lighting people on fire on online because it keep calling people racist, keep calling them bigots, keep calling people in the Midwest stupid. Mm. Just keep it up. You're going to get wow. Trump again. Why? Because I, I talk to people. <laughs> right. And you know who they're going to vote for in 24? Not Kamala Harris. Mm-hmm. I will be. Don't get don't get me wrong. I'm gonna be, <laughs> I'm gonna be circling all the democratic stuff. But like, mm-hmm. just calling balls and strikes. And I was the only person in my in my crew in 2015 who said Trump was going to win. Ah, uh, and nobody so, nobody like, believed me. Like, wasn't surprised. No, nobody. They all thought I was crazy. Yeah. And then he won, and I sat there. And I was just like, I told you guys, and they're like, everybody's racist. And I was just like, no, no, no. I told you what was going to happen. This is not. This is not. What you think it is. So, um, yeah. anyway. Well, listen, Owen, I unfortunately have to wrap it up. But okay. this, I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, I feel like I, we could talk more, for sure. Yeah, let's <laughs> let's do a part two, and we can talk about whatever. But I, I, I appreciate your... I appreciate you asking me a question from time to time. Nobody ever does that, and... I, <laughs> I appreciate you're like one of the like 300 podcasts I've done. You're like one of three people who have asked me a question and I appreciate that. Thank oh, you. Oh, I love it. I love asking questions. Yeah. So, um, but I also, I appreciate you sort of being willing to wade into the waters on some of these topics in a nuanced way. I apologize if any of that got you canceled for any reason, just for being on the zoom screen with me. Uh, we'll be can we can start our own canceled duo if, if something happens. <laughs> Um, I'll take you up on that. (laughs) But I hope hope people take away from this just the sort of idea that there's always a human being on the other other end of what it is you're doing. Whether Mm -hmm. your kids who are on Zoom watching you teach, there's a human – like you're a human being on the – you're not just a TV star. You're a human being who has a family and you've got a life and you're trying to figure out how to make things work. So, you know, if you see something Owen Davis is doing that you think is like, well, that's not right, reach out to him privately three times. (laughs) You know, and same with me. Um, yeah. I'm a human being, and I don't. The other thing too, when I, I kept asking you about like the ten years ago, ten weeks ago, I didn't think the same way I do now. Mm-hmm. And so, I want also everybody to not assume that what is locked in stone on this podcast is even what I'm going to think at like four o'clock this afternoon. Right. <laughs> and yeah. if if uh, if you want the freedom to change your mind, if you want that sort of uh, freedom to be there, then. I think giving other people that benefit too will serve humanity in a great way. But oh, and keep teaching, buddy. You're you're doing the Lord's work over there, and um, thank you. And you're very yeah. good at it. So I hope you're able to translate your in-person vibe. Uh, and I hope they still see you as a rock star uh, <laughs> at the end of the day. And also, finally, just on a facial hair tip, I dig the stash, bro. It oh, thank hard, you. It's hard to pull off a stash. Thank you. Yeah, I the stash is fun. The you stash. Try it's, it. 
Well, it's like the bow tie for the face. <laughs> and there's there's also just in terms of like you know yeah like offer three times reach out to somebody three times and never trust anybody with a bow tie like that's Ooh. sort of <laughs> there's and I feel like you're rocking the face bow tie but you you do it in a way that's trustful so, so keep Ooh, keep it up a trustworthy keep it up. stash okay <laughs> they're rare bro they're rare <laughs> all right man stay healthy and and I hope to chat soon okay you too thank you so much all right see you buddy. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. This podcast is brought to you by Liquid Drum. Liquiddrum.com down in Waco, Texas. Uh, my good friend Todd Meehan runs an amazing percussion company down there. Great merch, great content. Check him out. Liquiddrum.com. Also, Kyle Dunleavy, dunleavypans.com, D-U-N-L-E-A-V-Y pans.com. Kyle Dunleavy makes and builds all the steel drums that I perform and teach on, uh, and so percussion, as well as at NYU and Princeton. Uh, he's an amazing, amazing tuner, builder, um, just a really nice guy, very dependable. Check him out. If you are interested at all in steel pan advocacy, uh, want to learn more about the goings-on uh, in pan in Brooklyn, check out paninmotion.com. My good friend Kendall Williams, uh, Jerry Guy, Trisha Guy, and uh, Arisha John run an amazing organization called paninmotion.com. Check them out. And finally, Aliandre Mirage runs an amazing uh, clothing apparel company in Brooklyn that is steel pan centric. You can check him out at mango chow, C-H-O-W, clothing.com. I own a bunch of his shirts. They're amazing, very stylish, uh, beautiful, beautifully made. Check them out. Mango chow, clothing.com. Okay, hope you're well. Talk to you soon. Bye.